Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're asking what happened to the German POWs after the Second World War. Specifically, what happened to those who were picked up by the Soviets? For some, it was seen as a fate worse than death, to be captured by the formidable Red Army. But what was life really like in a Soviet gulag? Well, to find out, we have the amazing Dr. Susan Grunwald, a Soviet historian who has spent the last few years tracking down every single Soviet gulag where German prisoners of war were kept. She takes us through what it was like a day in the life of a German POW. She shows us how they were made to help rebuild the Soviet economy, how they were put into industry, even the war-making industry, and how they were set about rebuilding bombed-out cities. It is a remarkable story, one that I had not heard before, and it's even more fascinating because so many of them were not allowed to go home until 1957. I know you're going to find this one absolutely amazing, so here is the brilliant Dr. Susan Grunwald. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, we're starting to see the first signs of summer here. How about you? Where are you talking to us from? I'm currently in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we've had a little bit of sun recently, which is a nice change. Okay, good. Pittsburgh isn't famous for glorious weather, but you're starting to get some sunshine. Yes. We actually get more clouds and rain here than Seattle. It's a little known fact about Pittsburgh. Wow. Well, there you go. I'm assuming you don't work for the Pittsburgh Tourist Agency. No, and hopefully they won't come after me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, actually, I suppose what we're speaking about today doesn't really conjure up images of summer and warmth. Not that I'm comparing Pittsburgh to the Soviet gulags at all, but it does raise images of harsh Siberian winters. Is that fair? Were most of the gulags located in Siberia? Not really. So I've been doing a lot of research on German prisoners of war in the Soviet Union, and they are sort of a subset of, but not directly of, the major main gulag population. It's a complicated story. So every prisoner of war 
German prisoner of wars, the ones I happen to focus on, every prisoner of war of the Soviet Union during the Second World War, they went through a series of different camps. There are reception points where they went through filtration, and then they were eventually assigned to different camps, either a forced labor camp, or if they were ill or injured, to a hospital camp. And for those who were tried in like a war crimes tribunal, if they were tried and sentenced for a crime, only those ones who had been tried and sentenced went to a regular gulag camp. The other ones who hadn't gone through a criminal process like that, they just went to a separate forced labor camp system that was modeled on the Gulag and was actually sort of a parallel organization to the Gulag within the structure of the NKVD. They operated the Gulag, and for the POWs, it's called the Gupfi, main administration of camps for the affairs of prisoners of war and internees. And in your work, you focus specifically on those camps where the German POWs were, yeah? Yeah. So my research is on the context, obviously, of them during the war, but I really focus on what happened to them after the war, between 1945 and 1956, when the last of them actually went home. Wow, well, we'll get to that point, because that in itself is a remarkable fact, isn't it? And slightly disturbing. But take us back to the start of these camps. When did they start to fill up with German POWs? So, I mean, the proliferation of the camp system is directly tied to the progress of the war. So in the earlier stages of the war, as the Nazis were far more victorious in battle and were marching towards the gates of Moscow, there really weren't that many prisoner of war camps. They really started to proliferate after the success of first the Battle of Moscow, but really the Battle of Stalingrad, which was a major victory in that the Soviets defended their capital city and pushed the Nazis away. But the really resounding military victory for the Soviets was Stalingrad. That's where the tide of the war really started to change. And after that, the Soviets switched more so from defensive fighting to offensive fighting. They held their ground and then they started to push back and slowly made their way eventually all the way to Berlin. And as they transitioned from the defensive to the offensive fighting and gaining more territory and liberating territories, they began to take more and more German prisoners of war into captivity. They took actually a couple thousand prisoners of war into captivity at the Battle of Stalingrad itself because the German forces were encircled. The Germans had multiple opportunities to surrender and they didn't. Ultimately, they did surrender in the harshest, cruel Russian winter. And unfortunately, because they waited so long to surrender, the prisoners who were captured were in really bad physical condition and a lot of them died. That's not so much indicative of malicious Soviet policy is just a really bad situation all around. So the Red Army took thousands of men captive then, and they took additionally 22 generals captive, the most famous of which was Field Marshal Paulus, who was the commander of the Sixth Army at the time. And those men really served as the foundation to build and build the camp system out. The first ever Field Marshal to surrender, I think. Because you're not meant to surrender if you're a Field Marshal. No, Hitler was furious that he surrendered, and he was very upset that he did not do the dignified thing and kill himself. Exactly, as many a field marshal before is meant to have done. So these thousands of soldiers were then taken to go and build the camps. Now, how many camps were there? And I ask you that because I know that you have done some amazing digital research into finding out just where these camps were. Some that have even been lost to history, right? Yeah, so 
this is all due to serendipity. Miraculously, there's a source out there. It's an encyclopedia of camps of German prisoners of war in the Soviet Union from 1941 to 1956 that was put together by a joint Russian-German research team. Some German researchers went into the Russian state military archive and worked with historians there and archivists there to produce this volume that lists the rough location of these camps. It turns out that there are over 4,000 camps that operated across the entirety of the Soviet Union with the exclusion of Tajikistan between 1941 and 1956. And because of this volume exists, I was able to digitize it and work with a programmer to automate looking up the locations of where these camps were based on the city or the village name of where the camp was said to have been. And I've produced a series of maps that map these camps, that show the opening and closing over time. And I've also been able to do other digital research with geographic information system or GIS mapping to analyze the economics of the camp system, because not only do I have just the basic geographic plot of where the camps were and when they were in those locations, but I can put the camps in conversation with other things, such as the locations of the regular gulag camps, resources such as coal, infrastructure like rail lines, just putting the camps in conversation with locations of major industrial centers in the Soviet Union or major cities, etc., to really ask questions about how far removed was this camp system from regular Soviet society, for example, was there an economic purpose to the camps? Or was it really just a system of punishment, etc.? There's a lot more you can do with this type of digital mapping that you can't do. You can't answer some of these questions from either the restricted or scattered nature of the former Soviet archives. We did a TV series a couple of years ago on POW camps in the UK. POW camps for Italians and for German prisoners. And in the UK, it wasn't particularly about punishment. It was about trying to make the most of a workforce as well. And thinking about just how in dire straits the Soviet Union was after the war, was it just about punishment like we think the gulags were? If we think the gulag, we think this terrible, awful place. Or was this about trying to maximise the economic output of the prisoners? There's certainly an air of punishment to it because you're keeping these men in captivity, but really it was about having a labor force that they could use and getting economic productivity out of them, especially in the post-war years. The Soviet Union, despite the fact that it was a victor nation, really emerged from the Second World War as if it had been a losing, a defeated power. It lost 27 million citizens and about a quarter of its total physical assets. Hundreds and thousands of factories, villages, cities, they lay in ruin, just absolute rubble, burned to the ground. And so the prisoners of war served to be an immediate labor source amidst all of this human carnage. And then they also served to rebuild what they had had a hand in destroying. So recompense in one sense for the war, but also they just the Soviet Union was in such dire straits that they needed any and every able-bodied laborer that they could get. Well, yeah, I mean, there was 4,000 camps, right? So how many prisoners does that make up? Are we talking hundreds of thousands, or are we talking a million plus? Uh, a million plus. So at capitulation, the Soviet figures show that they had about 3 million Germans, and those are actually Germans, not counting Austrians, Hungarians, etc., 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 or Japanese prisoners of war. They had 3 million Germans at the end of the Second World War. But this is where I get into the point that I was going to make related to economics and not necessarily just punishment. By December of 1945, they only had a million and a half in captivity. 
So that's the first major wave of repatriation. As soon as the war was over, Soviet authorities tried to return anybody who was ill or injured. That was the only ticket out of the camps. They had no interest in trying to sustain somebody who couldn't return work to the camp system. They had their own ill and injured in the Soviet Union. They didn't want to waste scarce, precious medical resources or food rations on an enemy soldier who couldn't contribute back to the system. And then this is where it gets tricky. It's not necessarily that all a million and a half in that time period returned home to Germany. Certainly some and many died. The death statistics are very difficult to calculate. I think some of it is certainly due to the fact that some of these documents are still restricted. Generally, I was given access to any document I wanted in the Russian State Military Archive or the Государственный Архив Российской Федерации, the State Archive of the Russian Federation. But occasionally they would say, no, you can't have this document, or they would hand me a folder and... Uh, <laughs> The folder was declassified, but certain pages within the folder were not declassified, and so they put brown sheets of paper over those pages with a paperclip, and they said, don't look at those pages that have paperclips and paper over them. You can look at the rest of the file, but just don't open those ones. And I could tell that those were related to death statistics and things like that, because the index for the folder would still be there, and I could see, oh, this says something about cemeteries, or oh, this says something about POW deaths. Interesting that I'm not allowed to see those pages. So it's an issue of contention to this day. I won't ask if you lift up the brown paper and you had a peek, because, you know, as a researcher, I'm sure you'd never do such a thing. You wouldn't break the archives rules. But did you go out there to actually see some of these sites where the gulags were as well? Tracking these camps down is hard. A lot of them don't exist anymore. Even to cities where they had the camps, they don't remember that they were there. So the year after I graduated from college, I had a Fulbright fellowship called the English Teaching Assistant. So I was sent as an English Teaching Assistant to Russia for a year. I had no choice over where I was sent, and the powers that be decided that I would go to what is now my favorite city in Russia, Ulyanovsk, the hometown of Lenin, and also Kerensky. Wonderful city on the Volga in between Kazan and Samara. Obviously, it was a place that saw no fighting during the Second World War, but it was a place that had POWs build certain chunks of the city. And that's what actually sort of led me to this project. Initially, I had to hand in documents at the international department at the university for registration and things like that. And at the time, that department had a second office that was not at the university's main campus. It was in the downtown of the city on Karl Marx Street. And they loved to tell me about how this building had been built by the Germans. And I was very confused as to why there was a building built by Germans there in a place that saw no fighting. And it turns out, lo and behold, there had been a prisoner of war camp there. And those prisoners of war ended up actually building an entire section of the city around what was the Ulyanovsk automobile factory. They make a little type of Jeep that's been popular in Russia for a while. They also make, if you know anything about Russian cars, it's colloquially known as the Buhanka, the little bread loaf van. It's that van with like the two doors that is commonly or previously had been used as ambulances. Those are made in that city. Parts of that factory were made by the Germans. So take us through what happens then once you've been sorted and deemed fit for work, you're economically useful to the Soviet Union. What happens next? Are officers taken off and put into better camps? Are privates taken off and put in other places? What is the camp system like? So yeah, officers do go into different camps. So that's what you're also saying about this being to relics of previous camps. 
there were only a handful of camps that were especially for officers. One of them was a camp in Krasnogorsk, which at the time was sort of like not part of Moscow, but as Moscow has spread, it's become part of the city of Moscow or the greater Moscow region. And this camp was for officers only. And miraculously, for certain reasons that I don't quite understand, some of the buildings that were built by the Germans that served as the barracks and things for the camp, those remained. And then in 1985, they were turned into a museum. So that's an instance of a camp that is there and stayed, that officers camp stayed. But in other places, the camps went away or perhaps were repurposed and it was lost to time, as was the case in Ulyanovsk. You can't physically find the camp building anymore. But that's also something that's happening with the Gulag system as well. There are remains of some of those camps out in really remote regions in Siberia, but not every camp has been preserved. But to go back to your question then about what happens, the officers are separated out. The Soviet Union did not sign the Geneva Convention. They had claimed to uphold or continue to uphold some stipulations of the Hague Convention concerning prisoners of war. And some of this too had to do with animosity between the German government and the Soviet government and not allowing, you know, independent people such as the Red Cross in to examine each other's camps and whatnot. But despite the fact that the Soviet Union did not sign these accords and was not technically held to them, they had their own provision for the treatment of prisoners of war that largely was modeled on the accords and had very similar stipulations. So both the Soviet version and, say, the Geneva Convention version say that officers don't have to work, but enlisted men can be used for work. There are certain stipulations about what industries they can or cannot be used in per the Hague and Geneva Conventions. The Soviets didn't quite have that. So, for example, in the Geneva Convention, you're not allowed to use prisoners of war to do anything involving armaments production, but there was some armament production or defense industry-related production or use of prisoners of war in the Soviet Union. Per both sides of those types of prisoner of war agreements as well, you're supposed to treat a captive to the same terms and conditions that a man of an equal rank would get in your army. So if your private or enlisted man is supposed to get a certain amount of rations, your German captive of equal rank is supposed to get certain rations. If officers get better rations, then captured officers are supposed to get better rations. And there were actually stipulations for that in the Soviet Union. There were ration norms. Uh, whether or not they were met was a quite different and long and complicated story. There's a lot to get into, too much to get into right here and now, but that is something that's happening. So it sounds like that, although life was obviously pretty bad, it might not be as bad as what we think when we envision a gulag and a Soviet POW camp, especially when Stalin and Roosevelt used to joke about killing all the German officers. It sounds like actually they ended up being pretty useful for the Soviet Union, even helping them to prepare for the Cold War. Some of them, yes. So that, again, returns to the story of the one camp I was telling you about in Krasnogorsk. It not only was an officer camp, but it was the main location for anti-fascist training for prisoners of war. And also, that camp is where they disseminated anti-fascist re-education materials for all of the other camps. So, for example, a couple of officers there, if they had become disillusioned with the war and they wanted to help produce psychological propaganda materials to encourage members of the military to surrender, you know, leaflets, for example, to be dropped on the front lines that say, hey, I've been captured, you'll be treated well, the war is senseless, you should surrender. They also did radio broadcasts 
that were either broadcast via loudspeaker over the front lines or on the radio. Again, saying same things. I'm a captured German. The war is senseless. You should surrender. Don't believe the Nazi propaganda that you will be executed immediately upon capture. I have not been executed. I've been fed rations. I'm treated well. I'm clothed, etc. In these officer camps, especially that one in Krasnogorsk, there are also a number of prominent German socialists and communists in exile who had fled Nazi Germany, and they worked with these officers in these anti-fascist materials, in this anti-fascist re-education. It didn't really necessarily help end the war, but it did create an anti-fascist training program that was used for, well, re-educating and reshaping these men after the war, and that played a role in subsequent repatriations that were related to the politics of the Cold War and the formation of an establishment of formerly East and West Germany. Although we should say, of course, that the Soviets did commit some atrocities on their way through and did shoot a number of their prisoners, or is that incorrect as well? That's complicated to say. I don't necessarily know how many of them, if you're talking about regular soldiers or officers, were killed as opposed to actually put into a camp and a either a work camp or sentenced to the gulag. There certainly were atrocities happening in the march to Berlin, no doubt about that. But a lot of that, too, doesn't necessarily come out in the camp materials. No, that would make sense. Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And those who had been, I don't know, what would you call it? de-radicalized from fascism and then reorientated towards <laughs> communism they must have been really useful into the cold war were they sent to east germany there actually was not a preference for where they were sent repatriation went by where you came from when you joined the military or when you were drafted into the military whatever like you went back to your home in germany so if you were from what became West Germany, you went back to West Germany. If you were from what became East Germany, you went back to East Germany. I think there was the option to stay in East Germany if you wanted, but not many men decided to go for that opportunity. In fact, the repatriation figures, especially for these politically re-educated men, seems to show that preference was given to send more men to the regions that were under Western control than Eastern control. Now, I don't know if that is necessarily a factor of demographics and population, but there were certain repatriation convoys, and they tracked these anti-fascist returnees, and they said, okay, so-and-so is trained as an agitator, so-and-so is trained as a propagandist, so-and-so should be used in trade unions or schooling or whatever. They had breakdowns of what their potential use for anti-fascist and propaganda use could be, and then they said who went to which zone. And so if you go through that, you see that there are more going collectively to the British, the American, or the French occupation zone as opposed to the Soviet occupation zone. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? So agitators sent through into the Western side to maybe cause a little bit of mischief, which we know the Soviets were very, very good at. Unfortunately, this is where the story sort of drops. I've tried to track these men, but there's not really a record of them that I could find once they go to the West. So it's unclear if they did go and did agitate and did fight for Soviet-German friendship and socialism and peace, or perhaps they used that as their ticket to leave. Certainly some of the memoirs suggest that. One memoirist talked about going to a special anti-fascist re-education camp and realizing that if he didn't know how to parrot back what was told to him, he would be cut from the camp and sent back to the regular labor site. And so he said he studied hard, he said what he knew, what they wanted him to say, and he used that as his ticket to leave, and then he gave up on that cause upon return. So being somewhat cynical myself, I can see that not everybody who professed to be anti-fascist necessarily was anti-fascist. They could have seen that that was their way for self-preservation and their ticket to go home when otherwise they would just see nothing but a feature of labor in a camp. But clearly some of them too were actually either socialist or communist or open to changing some of their views, especially the younger men who were disillusioned by the end of the war. But there were also certain older people who had had experience with other political persuasions in Weimar, for example. So they might have been more open to, again, this type of re-education, especially after fighting such an atrocious and losing war. So Stalin dies in '53. And then we get a move through, of course, after a few years, through to Khrushchev. And then you say that the final prisoners are released in 56, 57? 56, 55, 56. January 56 is really when the last of them come back. 
And so what is it that prompts that decision then? Is that Khrushchev saying that it's time to let these people go or is there pressure from the Allies? It actually has to do with Cold War politics and the Soviet relations with what became West Germany. So up until 54, there was contention, right? The West Germans didn't really want to acknowledge the East Germans as a legitimate state. They didn't have proper diplomatic relations with each other, even after both states officially came into formation in, I believe it's 1949. And there was a situation, too, in the Cold War where the Western allies refused to recognize the government of East Germany as legitimate, and thus Soviet bloc allies refused to recognize the government of West Germany as legitimate. But the real game changer in the return of the prisoners of war has to do with the politics of the Cold War and Soviet-German relations. In September of 1955, Konrad Adenauer, who is the head of West Germany, finally went to the Soviet Union for a series of diplomatic talks to see if there was a way that both states would officially recognize the West German government and normalize relations between the two of them. Adenauer had sort of risen to prominence in West Germany, partially because of the POW question. He had always positioned himself as a champion for the POWs, someone who wanted their return, someone who wanted to take care of them upon their return. And so he continued this mission when he went to Moscow in September of 1955. And he kept relentlessly hammering Khrushchev about the question. He said, you know, you have to release the last of them. This has to be part of our negotiations. And eventually Khrushchev relented and he did indeed start the repatriations of the remaining few thousand men. And so they came back in October, November, December, and then January of 1956. Some of them were delayed based on their physical standing. They didn't want to send anybody who was too particularly weak. This was common even since like 1945. If someone was too particularly weak, they didn't want to put them on a train necessarily and have them die in transit. So sometimes they would try to give them additional medical care before sending them back. There were also certain peculiarities going on with that as well, and there might be evidence that the trains was a way to mask death statistics as well. But again, this is something that is still restricted in nature, and so that you're not going to get good answers on these questions right now. But 1956 then, January, that's when the last of them return as a result of these external pressures in the Cold War. It was in the better interests of the Soviet Union to relent, even though they didn't want to release the last of these men. It's also some of the last of these men truly were war criminals. There were war criminals amongst the German prisoners of war. That's a fact. Not everybody who was tried was tried under false pretense. There was legitimate reason to imprison some of these men. But under the brokering of the return of the last of them, some of these men then went back. And so is that what would have guaranteed you the longer sentence? And is that the reason why you're the last few thousand? Is it because you're being kept as an actual prisoner? You have committed some sort of atrocity during the war or a war crime, and therefore they don't want to let you go back to your normal life. Some of them, that was certainly the case. Some of them were tried under false pretenses circa 1949. So, at the end of the war, when the leaders of the Allied nations met, they agreed that they would return all of their German prisoners of war by December 31st, 1948. The British returned their German prisoners of war by, I believe, 1947, the last of them, supposedly. The French were the most resistant to return them. The Americans and British actually had to tell the French to 
relent and return the men, which they begrudgingly did. And then this issue of, well, you didn't return the last of the prisoners of war by 1948. What's going on? This was a new avenue for the Western allies to attack the Soviet Union in the burgeoning Cold War. The Soviets then suddenly make an announcement in their press service in 1949, and they say, well, we don't have any prisoners of war anymore. Everyone else is a war criminal. Now, not everybody had been tried by then, but they changed how they described these men and spoke about them. And so there was like, at least in the Eastern Bloc, a notion that only the last men are war criminals. There couldn't be any regular non-criminals mixed in with them. What they were doing was legally fine. And so there's some evidence of there being trials in the mid to late 40s, but it looks like not all of this was well executed in that some of them might have been found guilty by association. Certain prisoners of war in their memoirs or in their autobiographical accounts in the archives, they say, you know, I was tried, but I wasn't in that unit or I wasn't near that unit. But they said no matter what, that because my company as a whole was involved in something, a different unit was involved. That's why I was sentenced to this despite the fact that I wasn't there. Now, some of it could also be self-preservation. There are a lot of autobiographical accounts in the Russian state military archive of these prisoners of war, especially in the anti-fascist re-education department documents. And there's certainly nobody who wants to rat themselves out and open themselves up to being sentenced to 25 years of hard labor in the gulag. And so it's hard then to accurately say well, who is right or wrong in this conversation based on this evidence? So tell us about some of the lives of these prisoners once they're released. When we were looking into the cases in the UK, some wanted to remain in the UK. And, you know, there's people in my own family who come from the prisoners working on the land, meeting local women, and then getting married, having children. And you have those legacies in Britain and across Britain, in Scotland, down through to Norfolk, where you had people working on the land. Was it the same in the Soviet Union? Or did everyone want to get back and return to their families? That's, again, another really tricky question to answer. (laughs) You know, I've heard rumors and stories that there were some who wanted to stay. The memoirs that I have read that were written in either East or West Germany or written many years later and published, say, in the United States, they all seem to indicate that they wanted to go home to their families. I'm not saying that every single one wanted it, but the majority seems to be that they wanted to return. I'm familiar, too, with the case of wanting to remain in the country and these like relationships and friendships or love affairs that were formed during captivity. It's common as well in the American case for the German prisoners of war who were in the United States. I've read at least two memoirs by men who had been in captivity in the United States, had to go back to Germany, and then in at least one instance, worked with somebody who they had been assigned to on a farm. They worked with that farmer to get the documents in order to return to that community in the United States. But I haven't found much evidence of that in the Soviet case. It is remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable how war really does not only shape our cities, I mean, with the prisoners of war rebuilding industries and entire areas of accommodation where people can live, but it also shapes our social lives and our family histories as well. And speaking a little bit about the legacies and the history here, I've got to ask, how are the gulags and the German prisoners of war remembered in Russia today? It's an interesting case. If you talk to Russian citizens, because this was such a common occurrence in many parts of the Soviet Union or industrial centers and things like that, 
Russians know that the Germans were there. Russians know that Germans built certain parts of the city. It might not be super well documented necessarily which building it was or wasn't, but at least in the case of Ulyanovsk, a good hunch is the architecture. The buildings look different than your standard either two or three story Stalinist building or certainly your five story Khrushchevka building. They're a little bit smaller. They have balconies and slightly different aesthetic accents that you wouldn't think of as the drab socialist prefab housing. So that's one way that people know about that. I went with my friend, a local historian, into one of those buildings built by the Germans, and there were two little old babushki living there. And he knocked on the apartments, and they came out, and we spoke with them. And they had said that they had been young girls at the time when the Germans were there, and that the Germans had built the building. And they were very proud that the Germans had built the building because it was German-built, so it had higher quality than the Soviet-built buildings elsewhere in the city. Now, whether that's true or not, is hard to ascertain. The one woman raved about the radiator in the hallway and how it was the best radiator ever. It was twice as hot as any other Soviet radiator, but I'm not quite sure where the German prisoners of war would be getting German radiators to put into the building. But they know it happened. They're somewhat proud that they have these what they deem to be quality buildings built in these cities. Usually they talk about fond reminiscences between their interactions. There's not like hostility or hatred towards the Germans in that personal contact. They just saw them as other humans. They all went through a tough situation together in the post-war years. The one woman who lived in the building in Ulyanovs told us that the Germans would have a truck to go do their assignments, maybe pick up supplies and drive across town and drop things off. And they would often offer the girls a ride to the center of city if they were going that way. Things like that, like friendly little gestures between themselves. In other circumstances, I mean, there's been different levels of national remembrance of the prisoners of war. The major World War II monument at Stalingrad, the Motherland Calls statue, it's the big statue of the woman standing over a hill with a, a sword in her hand. That's actually part of an entire complex, and the complex has bas-reliefs on one part of it, you enter into this building, and that building has an eternal flame and things like that. But outside of that building, there's a relief and there's your standard socialist realist World War II style art talking about, you know, workers and peasants and soldiers working together under the leadership of the party and Lenin, and that's why they had victory. But then also the German prisoners of war are carved into the wall with a little tongue-in-cheek caption that says, you know, the fascist war dogs wanted to see the Volga, so the Red Army gave them this, quote, opportunity. So they're there in something as pawns, a symbol of Soviet victory, in something that's produced in the mid to late 1960s, and the design process of which began in the 1950s. But then circa 1985, the East German government and the Soviet government worked together to make the museum at the former officer and anti-fascist re-education camp just outside of Moscow as, you know, a symbol of Soviet-German friendship and cooperation even during the war years. Not every German was an enemy, not every German was fascist, there were even good socialist Germans who helped us try to win the war against the Nazis. Hey, look, they were collaborating before the war, <laughs> you know, this is, <laughs> this is the point. Molotov-Ribbentrop, we've seen it all there. They weren't enemies the whole time. And then obviously the post-Soviet collapse has allowed there to be different things. The current regime of Putin's government certainly characterizes the war in a certain way and uses the war to certain ends, but it also has not prevented other 
shall we say, interpretations, not necessarily interpretations, it's not like on a public grandiose scale, but Germans are allowed to go and find the burial sites of their relatives, for example, and they're allowed to put memorials in cemeteries. There's a memorial in the cemetery in Ulyanovsk. That goes back again to your question of the camps being lost. There was a camp graveyard that eventually got covered up, and then as the city expanded, they went to build a tramvai park in the 1970s and found a pile of bones and were very confused and then realized, oh, this was the cemetery for the German prisoners of war. And so they dug up all of the remains and transferred them to one of the city's main cemeteries on the northern edge of the city and buried them all together in a mass grave there. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the German Red Cross was allowed to go in. They put a marker there. There was an unveiling ceremony. And even up into 2016, the last time I was there, there was continued building and development of monuments there. One even calls them victims. It's unclear who they're supposed to be victims of, these Germans. Are they victims of Stalinism? Are they victims of Nazism? Are they victims of both? There's not like a footnote that explains it, but there is at least some freedom to express grief and remorse over the loss of family members who died while being a prisoner of war. Well, this is a truly remarkable history, Susan, and one that it sounds like is continuing to live on with new things being revealed all the time. Where can our listeners read more about this? Uh, Well, ideally, you'll read more about it if and when my book contract and book comes out. (laughs) But given the world of academic publishing, that's not going to be very speedy. I also just had another article on the memory of the prisoners of war and whether or not these camps were in Siberia and whatnot. That's been accepted in the journal German History and tentatively will be published in (laughs) early 2022. In the meantime, there's my personal website, which doesn't have that much on it. But as things continue to come out, I will put that out there. And I occasionally tweet about my research or anytime that anything else is coming out. That's at Susan Grunwald one on Twitter. We will tag you and we will tweet you and we will get you back on the podcast when your book comes out. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you very much, James. It's delightful. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.